from Rixie, this is Frameform, a show about movies, moving, and everything in between. I'm Hannah Weber. I'm Jen Ray. And I'm Claire Schweitzer. So everyone, how's it going? What have you, what have you been up to? Uh, more screen time than I should, that's for sure. <laughs> really? What kind of, are you doing a lot of work on the computer? Uh, yeah, you know, it's a kind of time of year where there's, it's so nice outside and I struggle because I have like a lot of editing to do and organizing oh, yeah. and just stuff like that that's really involved that I kind of do best at like the weird hours of night, but I'm almost 30 now. So it's like my bio clock has shifted and it's like, mm, you're not doing late nights. Like it's a challenge. I want to go outside when it's nice and I want to edit when it's dark and I can like burrow. And I, Dude, it's, I don't I'm know struggling. how you do it. You are a night owl. Like I'll get these emails from Jen at like <laughs> one in the morning and I'm like, yep, girl, I'm asleep, but I'm impressed. But also a little yeah. worried because I'm like, you should be sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be falling asleep. And you keep in mind, like um, I'm on the West Coast. The other two are on the East Coast. Um, all of this is an illusion. <laughs> um and I'll be falling asleep and I'll get like a text in our, you know, in our feed from Jen. I'm yeah. just like, oh my gosh. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. late over there. It's late over out West. Like it's super late out East. I remember when I moved here about five years ago, one of the things that, so I'm, I mean, Claire, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's like a slight justified resentment from the West Coast or just anywhere that's not EST. Standard time where it's like, oh, why is everything EST? So when I moved out east, I was like, (laughs) I'm in the main time zone. I don't have to experience things at weird times. And I can sleep in three hours. And like people in Vancouver are just getting up. So I don't have to feel as bad. But yeah, it's an adjustment for sure. (laughs) EST is where it's at. (laughs) Oh, PST. PST. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I totally West understand. Coast. Like, it's nice outside. You want to, like, go out and just, like, enjoy it. Yes. And, and before the schedule gets too crazy again with, yeah. like, real live events and things we have to, like, drive to. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little, uh, I'm about to go into the crazy hall of work. Uh, and it's, I'm just kind of, you know, the calm before the storm, just taking it easy before I, you know, go dive headfirst into the fire. Is it the busiest time of year? Like, what? when's your, like, busiest season for editing at your work, do you think? Like, the leading it's, months up to November or? It's definitely, yeah, the leading months up to November. I'm not going to disclose, like, exactly the kind of work <laughs> that I do, but it is definitely this year is a big one. We'll say that. Well, uh, we have a great show for you guys today. Um, we are going to be talking about lines, specifically bottom lines. <laughs> the bottom lines that can sometimes be the bane of our existence if you're, I mean, really, if you're in any line of work, but especially if you're in film work. So, yes, talking about talking about money and how we make, you know, how the amount of money affects the way that we work on films and how it affects the different kinds of films that we see. Yeah, very, that, I mean, that basically covers it. We're just going to 
get to the bottom line about money and how it affects us. But, you know, most importantly, before we get there, we got time. What are you watching this week? What did you what did you watch this week? Any good movies, television shows? Got that YouTube? Oh, um, I actually watched the film Aviva, the full-length dance film. I want to see this. Aviva is a feature-length film featuring dancers from Batsheva. Nice. And it's... It's already good. (laughs) And of course, the dancers are incredible. I have some critical issues with regard to the way the film was structured and sort of like some of the storytelling elements. But if you have some of the best dancers in the world who are absolutely in their element, it's it's a great watch. Do you know who the director is? Is it is it or Schreiber or his name's Boaz Yakim? Okay, I think he was the other dancer in Shifta, wasn't he? Like Shifta had three dancers. So Boaz, so this director is actually like a traditional film director. I think the whole creative genesis of the project was from or and possibly with Bobby Jean. Like Bobby Jean is the yeah. main correct yeah. yes, um, ma'am. <laughs> choreographer. who's fantastic. I mean, she's the whole reason that the West Coast of the United States has Gaga right now. She's yeah. something else. Thank you, Bobby Jean, for that. Yeah. <laughs> but the director actually, I think his best his best known movie is Remember the Titans. Oh really? what? That took place where I live. Oh my really? gosh. Yeah, it take it took place in Alexandria. What? Oh my goodness. That's so <laughs> random. Wait, let me double check that in case I'm like I I don't want remember the Titans. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, I was wait. worried when you had that long pause. I was like, "Oh no." So it was filmed there and like based on a true story in Alexandria, Virginia. TC Williams. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Wow. Yeah, I had a friend recommend me that. and I haven't watched it yet because there's no, like, theater by me. That's, like, view. Are we talking Remember the Titans or Aviva right now? (laughs) Oh, Aviva. (laughs) Remember the Titans on TBS, like, every week. So you can find that. (laughs) I much Remember the Titans on Disney+. Plus. But, yeah, Aviva is, like, playing in select theaters. And you have to, like, go through that theater to purchase a ticket and... It's a thing. Yeah. I've just never done that. Yeah. So I'll eventually get to it. I have been binging this YouTube channel. Ooh, yes. And I'm so excited to tell you about it. It's called Jubilee. And the whole the whole concept is, is basically having difficult conversations. So they kind of have two different video formats that I've been watching. One's called Middle Ground and the other one's... Um, I think called Spectrum. And it's cool from a choreography and filmmaking standpoint too, because for middle ground, topics might include uh, pro-life, pro-choice, pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine. Or so like specific policies or issues or some more general topics like political um, conservatives versus liberals. And it's really interesting because the concept is like, you're going to have a conversation and you're on camera, and let's try and be civil. And the idea is you're getting into this knowing that you're talking to people you disagree with. And no matter what the topic, the consensus at the end for a lot of people seems to be like, wow, I'm surprised how civil you were. Or that was really great to have a real conversation. Yeah, And it's something that we really need. And I think 
it's a great way to just get informed or gain perspectives on issues. Because it's one thing to like read different articles that are biased different ways, but it's another to see people hashing it out in real time. Yeah, um, that's awesome. So yeah, it's it's super cool. And they have like a bunch of videos on a bunch of different topics. So, that's really cool. Highly recommend. That they do like two different versions. That I've never seen that. The really quickly, the Spectrum one, they'll have it in like a big warehouse and they'll have a bunch of lines taped on the floor that represent um, neutral, strongly disagree, strongly agree, and all the not the in-betweens. And then they'll say the statement like, for any sort of issue, they'll say like a statement that you would fall somewhere on some uh, strongly agree to strongly disagree. And then you would just physically walk to that space. Oh, okay. So even from a viewer's perspective, you're like, oh, okay. Like I can see where people are literally um, standing on this issue. Yeah. And then they talk about it. That's really cool. I will definitely have to check that out. Yeah. I love good YouTube channels. Jubilee. I watched something that we briefly spoke about earlier this week. I watched the 2018 version of Suspiria. <laughs> oh, How was it? Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm mixed. Mm. I thought it was. I don't know. I'm like in the middle. I'm not a big horror movie kind of person, mm-hmm. and I am not the biggest Dakota Johnson fan. I think she's got. An aura that does not riff well with myself. I agree with what you're saying. Where like Tilda Swinton has an aura, but I'm like, yes, Tilda Swinton. So cool. I, she played like multiple roles in this movie, which I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. And I was actually surprised with some of, like, I think some of the editing in it was just fantastic. I like, there's just like a great vibe of dancing with the edit but then there was also really cool like experimental cuts as well as some like experimental I guess reactions or just it it was just like you don't really see that nowadays in like popular horror movie culture right and that's sort of like an homage to the original because Dario Argento's films like are kind of campy, but also very artistic and shocking and experimental and gaudy. And yeah. when I saw the trailer for this, Aspira, I was like, oh, it looks really sleek and like definitely feels like a, a more contemporary remake. But it's yeah. cool. I like how you said dancing with the edit. And I'm glad that they did um, make it feel dancey because it is a film that uses dance. Yeah. Yeah. And the original, I mean, comparing the this to the original, like they almost kind of feel like polar opposites as far as like their color scheme. Yes. Like yes. the original was one of the last films. It might have been the last film te- film in the Technicolor. And so like you have these incredibly like you rich, know, vibrant, saturated reds. While whereas Luca Guadagnino's uh, film or his version is very like muted yes. and very like dark in tone. But the dancing is exponentially better in the new one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing with the original is like, oh, it's, it's campy. Oh that's why it's great. I actually did dance cinema, did like a Suspiria inspired like performance last year. And oh, it yeah. was like, right. I had the dancers watch the original and they're like, what is this? And I was like, just go with it. You should know the vibe. Like, no, it's not the best dancing. But I find a lot of time when you, and this is really relevant for a budget discussion, like, and it will be for later discussions as well as we talk about tech and, and how audiences evolve and education. Like, 
there's only so much that you're prioritizing in certain areas. And honestly, a lot of older films that dance don't have the best dancing. Like, it's not about the dancing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think definitely, like, it now, like, matters more. As well as just, like, how editing technology has evolved since the 70s, you know. Oh, absolutely. Now we can do more of those non-traditional cutting. So I thought parts of it were really great. I wouldn't say the whole thing was great, but... Speaking of editing, they could have taken an hour off of that film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, sorry, Dakota Johnson. I s- will still watch your work. I think you're cool as a person, but I don't really like you as an actor. Uh, and with that said, let's move forward. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let's dive deep into our topic today and just get real about budgets. What do budgets usually cover in these kinds of situations? Because sometimes we see a number and we don't know, okay, what went into that number? So what does, you know, if say you see a film's budget on IMDb, what is that usually covering? What does it not cover? I mean, when you get to the very end of the film, you're watching all those credits, that money goes probably to some of those people, but also like the gear that was used if they're renting the gear and most productions are renting the gear. Some of that money is probably going into, you know, festivals. Some of that money is also going into feeding the people on the set, costumes, lighting. Maybe you have to pay for the location that you're filming at. Insurance. Oh my gosh, insurance, huge one. If you have insurance, am I right? No, you should have insurance. Um, (laughs) So insurance, definitely. I think a big one, especially for dance film, is time. Like rehearsal time, rehearsal space. That's such a... It can really make or break a film because if you want to base your whole film around, okay, we're going to have zero to one rehearsals or we're going to practice this in a completely different space than our filming location, it does change the nature of the production. And I think in general, like just time, how much time do you have to pay your editor to pull this together? Like you mentioned, festivals, like submission fees. How do we try and see that this film gets seen and how much is it worth to submit? And what are the priorities of the film? Another thing's talent. Like if you want to have, I'm not saying uh, more or less talented people. I'm saying uh, talent like, like those bigger names, right? Like Money can buy you those bigger names or that access, or it's something that comes into play once you have that reputation or that status. Yeah. It's a funny thing. I've been in LA like during Oscar season, and you'll see like these random films that have like you've never heard of, like some foreign film that has like some random billboard. And you just think they probably spent 75% of the film's budget just for marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, That's another yeah. one. That Definitely. is another one. Yeah. No, you're right. Like the, with marketing, like that's such a huge part of the budget for a certain tier of film. I was definitely like my mind was super kind of in indie film budgets. And I'm trying to think like, okay, what are the what's that nitty gritty? And I think they often don't have a budget or much of a budget for marketing. And that's something that continues to be really important. Yeah. Even if you just equate that to people's time to market it. We picked three films today to basically figure out What's their budget like and why does the budget matter in these films? 
not all these films are the same. They are different tiers. So we picked a very expensive film. We picked a very low budget film. And then we picked something that's like in between. So why don't we start with our first film, our expensive one, which is a scene from Dola de Rolla. This 2002 picture directed by Sanjay Leela Bansali. Jen, you actually picked this one. Can you tell us why you think the budget is important or the budget was effective in the execution in this scene? Before I get into the details about that particular scene, when we decided we were doing this episode and we were going to discuss three films, we kind of had three general tiers. One was like millions and then hundred thousands or singular thousands or lower. And I was trying to think like, okay, what is the most expensive film I can think of? And it was really challenging when I was thinking about more like independent films or things I might've seen at festival. Of course, something like a feature film is probably going to have a bigger budget. So I was really racking my brain. And then we decided like, okay, we could do feature films that are more mainstream. And then I thought, where is there so much money in the film industry that also has dance. And immediately I was like, oh, Bollywood for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like historically, you know, we think about Hollywood and how musicals were, you know, part of that golden age of Hollywood. And, you know, Hollywood's gone through many different phases and eras and different schools of influence. But I think when we think musical films in the U.S., and I'm just saying that because the three of us are here in the U.S., I'm not saying that because, you know, for whatever reason, we don't always think about dance as being a mainstream ingredient throughout. Whereas Bollywood is a massive industry. Young kids everywhere to adults take the style of dance or these styles of dance that go into these films. And it's just something that I think we maybe don't always think about when we're when we're caught up in like North American culture. So that's all to say that I decided like, oh, I've seen this really good scene. I think I remember this movie being expensive. So the movie's called Dev Does and it came out Um, as Hannah mentioned, in 2002. And, you know, this is an example of where you see star power being part of the the budget. This particular scene features two principal dancers, Aishwarya Rai and Madhuri Dikshit, because Madhuri is like more of an old school icon. And then Aishwarya Rai, like this was her breakout film. So this would almost be like, I'm trying to think of another version of this. It would be like if you had Diana Ross with Beyonce or something like classic diva with the new generation diva like in the same scene. So it's a lot of like star power and budget for that. And I mean, this scene's really beautiful, lovely set, warm color palette. The music's really catchy. I think it's really nicely executed and it's not like gaudy and expensive for the sake of it. It's very tastefully styled, I think, just in my own opinion. And there's a lot of dancers in it. I actually should have found out how many dancers were in the scene. There's a lot of dancers. It's a a lot. And I think that that's just, you know, as a choreographer, like that adds to your um, ability to do transitions and to do formations and create those Busby Berkeley type overhead shots and create that texture in the choreography, but also in the filmmaking. So, I mean, I highly recommend this scene. I have not seen the entire movie. I will admit it. But I think the things that probably drove up the cost of this particular scene, which, I mean, we, and and thank you, Claire, for also like trying to do some research on this. We were trying to find adjusted for inflation and for currency exchange, how much this film was. And I think what I found 
was that it was 28 million US dollars for the song or for this scene, not for the entire movie. So that's a lot. I mean, by comparison, La La Land was 30 million million for the movie. Footloose in 2011, 30 million for the movie. Some lower budget, but classic musical films from yesteryear, Grease and Dirty Dancing were about 6 million each. That's not adjusting for inflation. So this is a really expensive scene. And I think a lot of that went to production value, like set and costume and star power, and then just the sheer amount of people that were in the film and in this scene that they had to choreograph and rehearse. And they were pretty together. So I think that it definitely paid off. Yeah, I mean, the costumes alone, like very detailed costumes with just the beading as well as like the bells that they used on their on their costumes or on their jewelry. Another thing I was noticing, just like the kind of camera gear they're using. And they're also, let's see, are 2002, probably still shooting on film. So think about like how much film they're actually recording on and how many, I don't know how many roles they could have gone through. I mean, how many times they had to go through it just to like pick up the different details. I mean, there's a lot of cuts in this scene that definitely like makes it all lively they're also probably using a jib. They're using sliders. I don't think they're using a steady cam. I don't think, I'm not sure. But I mean, there was like a lot going on just as well as like shooting the extra part. There's that whole part where they're just like, this guy is like walking across and you just like, he's just like looking. Yeah. I'm making the gesture right now. I ended up laughing. Like every time he comes on camera, I'm like, ah! he's back I would just start laughing at that point because it kind of became a trope in the yeah. scene I think that guy is Shah Rukh Khan who's also like a huge huge actor in India like kind of like the Brad Pitt of India basically <laughs> do you think it says that on his LinkedIn or his IMDB I'm the Brad Pitt of you India could, <laughs> yes you, you could totally look it up but yeah but I also wanted to go back to just the the dancing as well and the precision of the dancing which very precise. Not only like Jen, as you were saying, budgets by time. Yeah, basically, and in literally in so many ways, you can see that in this film. Like you can see the time it took to you know, perfect that choreography and get it completely in sync, and the time that it took to retake those scenes just to make sure everybody was in sync. Like I was reading somewhere that like there's this one moment where the two main dancers have to fall at the exact same time. And then that was ended up being very, you know, straining on the dancers. And especially if it's on film, that's a lot of film that you're, that you're rolling as well. So you can pay for this incredible set, but you can just see also just the amount of, of time, the amount of hours that were invested into making this happen. Okay, so a film that's on the other side of the spectrum of budgets is our next film, which is La Demiuge, directed by Alan Asakawi. And the budget on this film, or at least the budget figure that was provided for this film, was approximately 2,000 euros, which is somewhere along the lines of $2,500 or so. And it's a, well, first of all, a very short film. It is a one-minute film. Is it a series? So it's not a series. It's, I know, like, Demiurge number one makes it seem like it is. But it also ended like it's 
an ellipses. Like there's another part to it, but go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a continuation to it in another film called uh, We No Longer Wait for the Barbarians. But that second film wasn't made until this film was because there's there are a lot of one minute dance film contests out there. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so and I mean, as programmers, you probably see a lot of submissions that are like on the dot one minute long. And usually these are ideas that are that compete for prizes. And in some cases, the prize is a an actual film commission where you can fully realize the idea that you have. And so the his second film, We No Longer Wait for the Bar- Barbarians, is sort of like the realized version of the film. But um, and it's a pretty simple film. It's filmed at a cargo yard and features two dancers who are going in and out of these cargo boxes. And it gets I, I do say it gets a lot done in, in a span of one minute. Yes. I was just thinking like, I mean, 2000 euros. That's pretty low. That's a pretty good budget. The question to me is like, could this be a cheaper film? I think it could be. I mean, what? A, I agree. I mean, there's a handheld camera, digital camera, mind you. Two dancers. Uh, I know shipment yard is a little dangerous, so there could have been some kind of liability there. But it's a very successful film that gets done really quickly and, you know, doesn't need a lot of, you know, you don't need that much to it, I guess. It's just a very simple but yet a very effective idea. And I think it could be cheaper. I don't think it would change if it was any cheaper. Maybe it could be at less festivals, if anything. Right. What do you guys think? How would it be different if it was maybe more expensive or if it was cheaper? Yeah, I mean, I think you brought up a great point that it could be done for less. And like we said earlier, when we kind of started this discussion, there's so many, they're they're almost infinite budget line items. So we can only assume based on the facts we have and try and guess how 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 this budget was distributed or what it might be going towards but in general i agree like and i agree with what you're saying too claire like a lot happens in this minute i feel like i appreciate that it's very efficient the dancing's great i think it's shot well for the screen you know i don't really have anything bad to say about it i agree with what you're saying with it could have been done for less as for what they could have done with more money, I guess that's where you get into territory of, oh, maybe we add more length to the overall project, but maybe the idea was to do one minute or maybe we get more people, but maybe the idea is to have a duo. So yeah, I I, I think this is such a straightforward concept that I'm almost thinking like, what would the extra money even be for if it wasn't going to change what we're actually looking at? What do you think would be different about the Dolor de Rola scene, if it was like cheaper, messier dancing for sure, because that's rehearsed. Like, yeah, just straight up, you don't get that many people dancing that exact without a lot of rehearsal time and without some sort of sense of responsibility and commitment. And like, I'm being paid to do this, so I should take it seriously. Not that people don't do things seriously and with full heart and effort when it's not paid, but I think that. You know, if your feet are bleeding and you've been on set for eight hours, like we're doing this take again because someone else sneezed, like it helps that you're being paid for that time. And I think it helps your morale as well. Also, rehearsing the camera people as well. 
And camera people who know dance are few and far between. I mean, I think that it would be a little different, just like all its resources. I mean, we were talking about camera gear. We were talking about also like the amount of people in the picture. I think it would just be a lot smaller. I think it would be shorter. I mean, this is like almost 12 minutes for a scene and a song. That's insane. I mean, that's longer than a music video. And I think it'd just be like a lot smaller, a lot shorter. It wouldn't be in maybe the place that it was. I think it would just be night and day. Yeah. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be the same thing at all. Definitely. And I feel like a lot of the time as someone who's Similar to our conversation we had about music videos where the choreographer is there to make the artist look or portray what is the goal of that production. I feel like when you have a certain budget and you have a mindful production team and director and producer, or maybe that's all the same person (laughs) on a certain production, if you're making those choices that are right, it should feel like you're watching something that is, it has enough as it is in a way. I I really don't like when I watch something and it takes so much longer than it needs to or it looks so much more expensive than it needs to because like to be honest like I'll just start thinking man like people are starving and you had to have that extra thing there in this production. I know Mm -hmm, that that's obviously like taking this in a more serious direction but it is something that crosses my mind when I'm watching like excessive spending in the name of art or in the name of entertainment some of the worst films I see in submissions or some of like the big misfires that I see in submissions come from really incredibly expensive films where you're just like, someone put time into this. Someone put money into this. Someone thought this was going to be a good idea. And I'll say it. Sometimes the people that put money into it are taxpayers. And that's why I get really, I, when I see that a film has been um, funded by a government grant, I, really hope that it's good. Like, I really hope that it is. And there's always an interesting question there of, we're we're thinking through this here. So I, I just want to present a complete thought here before it's like, what? She said what? If the government is funding something, and I'm I'm speaking from my Canadian perspective, when I started making dance films, I was looking at what kind of grants are out there. They were so outdated. Like, in 2013, I think the last time that the grants had been updated for the dance on screen was like 15 to 20 years before that. Mm. So it's just Mm -hmm. like, that was really frustrating. And I think that, and obviously the intent is really positive here, but there are certain goals that depending where you're getting your money, different institutions or governments have different priorities for the project. So to what extent are you designing a project so that it can earn that money for that particular cause? And how authentic is that cause? Um, if it's, if it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a struggle. It's something that is, I find really interesting because when you start talking about taxpayer dollars versus private donations, I think there's an extra layer of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about responsibility in the end. I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's a functioning adult, you know, like you got to put time and thought and Also, when you're doing those two things, you also have a team behind you and you have to have a supportive team that is going to be with you on your thoughts that you put into 
something that was actually funded. You can't be like wasting it on like fire unless that's the main thing <laughs> in your film. But, you know, like bringing tigers on set. Or the rights to like that particular song that you really want. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> you know, like you have to choose your things wisely when there's a dollar sign behind it. Looking at the film, uh, The Cost of Living, which is our mid-tier Ironic film, title. The Cost mm-hmm. of Living. Yep. <laughs> uh, this film is a 2004 picture directed by Lloyd Newsom. And this film was, you know, I think it's very moderately budgeted. I think it works well. His budget was 250000 pounds which goes up to three about like three hundred and fifteen thousand dollars u.s dollars i think this film used its budget very wisely i don't think it needed to go even more expensive i don't think it could have been done for any cheaper i mean it's 2004 so probably still recorded on film yeah like i said i think it's moderately budgeted correctly I love how, just like quick aside, I love how 2004 this looks. Like I actually follow a few Instagrams that are specifically dedicated to the flaming garbage heap that was the early 2000s for like (laughs) fashion and pop culture. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking like, Claire, you just mentioned uh, Khan being like the Indian Brad Pitt. Well, this has the Scottish Chad Michael Murray. So I'm wondering if uh, if that guy's like some star or maybe at a premium because it's like, yeah, Chad Michael Murray is like really popular right now. So if you want me in your film, like it's going to cost you a pretty penny. <laughs> yeah. Got to pay for my hair gel. Yeah. So I think it's important to mention with Cost of Living that this was a Channel 4 commission. So it was originally commissioned for the television. Um, so the budget's very much that of a television budget. And it was also adapted from the stage production of The Cost of Living. Yes. uh, Which I think was originally 90 minutes long. And yeah, and Deviate also, they're known for making some like very physical theater types films like Ender Achilles and Strange Fish, which is one of my favorite feature length dance films of all time. But yeah, and also, I mean, I say uh, Channel 4 commissioned it, but Knowing other artists that have been commissioned by Channel 4, I don't think they footed the whole budget. Part of the budget was sourced from probably like Art Council grants and and the like. That is, that's a really important point that I definitely uh, wanted to make sure we brought up in this episode is that even when you see that logo at the end of the film and the credits or that association, often that's not 100% of the budget. And I think that's a misconception with people that haven't kind of been through it already or seen examples that often there is some crowdfunding or private investing or personal savings or more than one stream of of funding to make a project really happen. Yeah. Also, sometimes it's just kind of like a, like, hey, we got someone important. Like, it always feels good. I have to say, like, it feels really good when you're able to put, like, a logo that helps support a film. Like at the end of your film, you're like, yeah, I'm a real filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, it's like a stamp of approval. Yeah, and it it is attractive for festivals because it it even if you don't even watch the film yet, when you're just going through submissions, you kind of see like, oh, this is something from, you know, this is a lottery funded film or mm-hmm. this is something from Canada Council for the Arts or this is a DFA grant. you like, it just gives you that um, 
it's already passed through some element of development. So you're you're hoping that you're going to see something maybe more robust. And I know that I really like programming films that do have some sort of grant, not all of them, but each year I like having a couple examples so that people in the audience or people looking at the selections, even just on the internet, can can find their way to those other possible streams of funding for their own project. Like, oh, this is a thing. Cool to know. Yeah, I think that's very important is just kind of like, yeah, taking note of what else is out there of how you can get your money to support your film. And I think what's so great about the cost of living is just how well balanced it is for the television. Like you got that good, uh, you got a great story. You have an interesting cast as well as just very well planned out camera setups and locations. I think my only wish I could say, or like, I don't know, maybe they could have used a little bit more money for extras. I think there's some scenes that are just a little too empty. Like there's parts where I'm like, yeah, that's totally makes sense why there's no one there. But then there's like another scene where he's like in this kind of like club like location and he's like dancing in front of the camera, dancing next to his friend and bouncing his head. I'm like literally doing the motion right now. And um, I just kind of wish there was more people around. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, like the whole place feels like a small town community, which I think is great. Like you can tell that this was made for the stage, but that small town community feel kind of, I guess it makes sense why it was kind of empty. Do either of you have like kind of some context about where this is situated in like academia? So, I mean, well, first of all, the film is, you know, features Deviate, which is the like, I mean, the premier like physical theater company in England. Even like really like random people know who Deviate is. Like they have a pretty solid stamp on um, sort of arts and culture in the UK and and also it reflects the way that they present their performances like their i actually saw a performance of theirs live maybe 5 years ago and it's a very i mean the way that they construct their their work is very cinematic in a way like the show that i saw actually like has a moving stage and nice and yeah i mean it's very much you know using using like ex- exaggerated theatrical physicality in in a way and it also bar- they're also really big about showing like sort of I don't I don't want to say underbelly of British life, but some sort of like the more working class, like some more controversial topics like uh, Andrew Achilles would discuss like toxic masculinity. Um, their last piece, John, was really uh, talking about like the bathhouses of uh, England in during during the AIDS crisis. And they're, yeah, really focused on show like showing stories and you know, touching on issues that typically aren't seen in British theater as a whole. But with this particular film, I think this came out at a very interesting time in screen dance. Like it's kind of coming at the tail end of like British commission films, like films that were specifically made for TV and coming in towards the beginning of sort of like the digital age of films made for. Yep. Yeah. So it kind of straddles those two lines. Like the length is a bit of an odd length that straddles those two lines as well. So yeah, because it played at a lot of festivals when it was released. It was everywhere when it was first released. Yeah, the other thing about the, and thank you for the context. I really appreciate it. The other thing about films that tend to be longer is, 
I feel like they tend to go either, you know, this is a straight up documentary or they go more of this like poetic video route, in which case it's really difficult for it not to feel long winded or like, oh, this is longer or more of a feature length for the sake of it rather than like it needs to be. And then there's films more like this one where you definitely get more of like a movie or a short film vibe in addition. And something that's really unique about this one, I find, is that it actually has dialogue. It actually, it feels very surreal. Like the dance is almost just used as like an ingredient in it, even though there's a lot of screen choreography and like mindful composition, different elements of movement, like the hula hoops or the skateboard or like the last shots really like very striking and, and uh, leaves a, an impression. It's when the the two friends are like walking on the beach and... um you know, just the, like you mentioned, like this exaggerated movement and this theatrical movement and very experimental. But yeah, I just find that it almost by default or by, as a result of being longer, there's usually seem to be more filmic or narrative elements that are not dance that are mixed into these films. Like compared to other longer films, like I don't know. What What do you think? Have you guys seen any features that are more in like the 20 minute plus range? And have you noticed those similar like subcategories almost? Uh, I don't think I can speak to that because that's not I don't I'm not like you guys where I'm watching submissions all the time. I mean, you'll have some films kind of towing the the 20 minute mark that are and those are those are their most difficult films as far as programming goes because a lot of them are spectacular but then you also ask like how where do i put this like how can this be seen in the best way that it possibly can yes like this year was kind of like the theme like the theme was like 16 minute films like a bunch of amazing <laughs> films that were submitted that were like right around wow. the 16 minute mark and they were like oh my gosh these are so incredible and like i know from a festival standpoint we can't take them all and we're going to have yeah. to make some tough decisions. I think there should be more of these kinds of films. And I wish there was a channel on television where we can feature this kind of stuff. Because maybe this is just like my prerogative. But I really like the whole combining of like dialogue and dance. Like I like... When there's like some kind of, I don't know, I like a mix up. I like a variety. I think it's more striking and more inventive, uh, captivating because there's a little bit more going on. I like the sub genres. I like the sub, the subs, you know, all the subs. <laughs> well, have you, have you all seen Moss, uh, Celia Ralston Hall? Yes, film? I have. It's... Still have not watched that. <laughs> You're like, even though it was super popular, you're like, it's one of those things that becomes like a trend and you're like, I just need to wait this out till everyone stops talking about it and then I can watch it. I know I'm that way with a lot of things sometimes. Same. Yeah, it's one of those things where sometimes you'll have dance films try to reach that feature length length just to like hit that length, just to, you know, say like, okay, it's this long. It's now legitimate as a film, but doesn't necessarily need to be. With that said, I mean... This is where we kind of ask when we are given this budget, you know, do we need to make more? Obviously, we've said, no, you do not have to. But when do we draw the line of amateur and professional at this point? You know, we have three films. 
I say they all look professional. But, you know, you we have probably seen a film that is almost a feature length and say this is totally amateur. How do we, you know, distinguish the two? If you're wearing a Lululemon sports bra and you have not covered up that shiny logo, it's an amateur <laughs> film. I don't care what your budget was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when it comes to like amateur amateur filmmaking, a lot of screen dance academia or a lot of you know classic screen dance comes from the tradition of amateur filmmaking. And I mean, honestly, when it comes to experimental film, most, if not all of that is, you know, from amateurs who weren't trained professionally as, you know, as filmmakers and who were certainly not making any kind of money from the work that they were making. So there's a value to sort of like this neophyte, you know, coming into a form that maybe they don't have formal training in. But then there are also, you don't necessarily want to use that as an excuse for poor creative decisions. Totally. Yeah. You also don't want to use, you know, the professional label as an excuse for poor creative decisions. Like I can do this because I'm professional and I've got the monies and I've got the training. But something interesting I've seen in certainly in dance films, but a lot of internet content is sort of these professional production places or professional production marketing agencies using amateur aesthetics in order to kind of be more, seem more relatable. So sometimes you'll see ads like that are filmed like in vertical mode on an iPhone or have like, you know, manufactured like, you know, awkward dialogue sorts of things. So I think, and now since quality film equipment is so widely available, those lines are becoming very, very hard to draw. I think that's such an important thing to bring up is like the evolution of what consumer technology is available. I know that one of my favorite cameras for dance is the DJI Osmo because no, you can't change lenses, but it's compact. It has a gimbal. It has, um, you can do 360 rotation and all these automatic modes like with the controls on the camera. And I mean, I have been hanging off the side of a Jeep, like while it's driving full speed with this thing, like I've been running alongside people or like on the back of an ATV and like, it's just clear, smooth picture. And of course it changes what you're able to capture based on what equipment you have. But there, there is so much amazing. I mean, anyone that has an iPhone has a camera that's better than the average person had like in a digital camera years ago, like the the quality of technology that's available um, to the average consumer. And of course, there are like these things still cost money. And, um, you know, it's more expensive than zero dollars, but it's not tens of thousands of dollars for a professional camera, you know. So things have evolved for sure to really um, democratize filmmaking a little bit more and make it more accessible for more people to to start dabbling with it. Call me old fashioned, but... I don't know. I'm a traditionalist. Like, I think when it comes widely available, I think it gets sloppy. And I don't like being sloppy. I don't like when I see sloppiness. I'll admit it. I think films are just always better when they're thoughtfully planned out. And when you have that budget, you know, you have, you know, you got to work with what you got and what you can do. And like, Plan, if you have it in the budget, rent out an expensive camera, get a red, get some really nice uh, lenses. So you, 
it looks nice. I think that's really important. The one thing I always look at when I watch these dance films on the internet, the first thing I'm thinking about is just what is what kind of camera is it? You know, I'm not, you know, thinking like, is it an Ari? Is it a red? Is it this? Like, no, I just want to know if it looks nice. You know, is it lit well? Is the camera placed correctly? You know, and with that said, it goes into also what's their location? What's their costumes? You know, and that goes all into the budget of just like where these all fall into on your guideline, on your spreadsheet of organization. So it executes a nice picture. And with that said, the editor, whoever's editing it, has a smoother time making it. I just think planning and budgeting is, it does make the picture to me. Yeah. That poor editor, if all you've shot is like nothing they can work with, right? Like something that I think, you know, money can't buy is great ideas. Like you can buy someone's time or you can contract someone to do something, but it's not going to buy great ideas or innovative thinking. Like sometimes it doesn't matter how much money's poured into it or how little money's poured into it. You can see something that's excellent that has been, you know, that would otherwise be considered amateur. Like the power of ideas is really important. And then just, I find like a lot of dancers, there's actually like a great meme about this. Like when dancers try to act and like, you know, sometimes like if I don't believe you, it doesn't matter how great of a dancer you are. It doesn't matter what this camera is. It doesn't matter how great the choreography is. Like your acting like is ruining this for me. Like you're a live performance type of dancer. And I think that that's something that's really um, just part of the cohesive whole of something feeling professional or amateur is does everything come together and it, you know, does it interrupt itself almost with these errors, whether it's like, oh, that dancer's off or that logo's showing or... Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. You know, like those kind of sloppy things or like, was that an outlet in the back corner all of a sudden? Or did someone's mom just walk through the shot? Or for me, like, especially when films are shot out in public, like I do get, I know that it's like a thing and it's, um, it's, it's maybe we do an episode on that. Like there's definitely its own like genre of dance film, but I do get irritated when people are just filming something in public and trying to treat it like a regular location. And then there's like someone picking their wedgie in the back. And people are just standing yeah, there watching. Yeah, it's so and then awkward. They like look away. And, and they're like talking and they're like kids acting up. Like it's just an, a mess. And this isn't all films filmed in public, of course. But there's multiples that I've watched where I'm like, oh, just get a location or like go there when no one's there or like during a pandemic. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking, of, speaking of dancers doing dialogue, um, Aviva. Oh, it happens? Yeah. Oh it, <laughs> oh, it happens. And it's one of those things where it's just like, okay, I have a feeling you put the, you know, you had the dancers speak so much because you wanted to make it a, you know, quote unquote, real feature film, but just let them do what they do best. <laughs> like I'd watch Bobby Jean, like just stare at the camera for five minutes in the middle of a room. Like, that's that's all I want. <laughs> yeah, you're like, that's what I need. <laughs> yeah. She's already speaking without using any words. That's yeah. the point of dance. But I also wanted to say that sometimes, considering, like, our general knowledge, and I think most people have a general understanding of, like, what looks like an iPhone video and what looks like something that's of more quality. And that can play to some um, filmmakers' advantages sometimes. I'm just thinking the movie Tangerine, for instance, by Sean Baker is shot entirely on an iPhone. Yeah. And in that particular case, with that particular story, it works exceptionally well for, you know, the type of environment it's in. 
And similarly with his next film, The Florida Project. So good. Oh my gosh, it's gorgeous. But most of that film shot in 35 millimeter, except for the last six minutes, which are shot on an iPhone, which provide this like such a different quality for the last, you know, several minutes of that movie. So, but again, these are planned out. These are planned out <laughs> films. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, to me, like if there like are two steps to instant production value, if you only have an iPhone, shoot landscape and stabilize. Amen. Please shoot landscape. Yes. Oh my gosh, it's so true. Uh, is there something so heartbreaking than seeing something that was recorded in portrait mode? Um, and it's not stabilized. Yeah. Being able to have a dialogue and being humble and being honest with your collaborators, like, I understand this. I don't understand this. Like, I don't know the technical term, but this is me trying to communicate. Like, trying to communicate across disciplines is so important because if you're so, for example, if a dancer can't comprehend like, oh, they're on, the, the camera only sees my feet right now. So I got to put all my energy into detailing my feet and everything else can just, you know, I don't have to worry about it. Or the filmmaker, like understanding that the camera must, or maybe it doesn't for your project, but the camera maybe needs to move a certain way or how to read dance or that your editor knows what, how to understand dance or music. The more that they're able to have that knowledge or at least be in communication, it automatically elevates your production value. Even if you're a crew of students and one of you is like focused on music and one of you is focused on cinematography and one of you, you know, like being able to acknowledge what your strengths are and what what you also don't know will automatically elevate that production. And with that said, if you have a budget, use it wisely. But don't be intimidated to the point where you don't feel like you can't make anything either. Correct. As Maya Darren said, cameras don't make films. Filmmakers make films. Yes. I like that. And I would say another cautionary tale is not to be enticed by the newest technology because often things are like expensive at first and there's all this buzz about it. And I'll actually use an example like... So Jason Carmen, I think that Hannah, you maybe met him. Um, and Claire, I'm sure you would have seen his film. It's called The Promise. It was shot in stereoscopic 3D. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he opened up in a, in a panel discussion talking about what that production was like and just being like, yeah, I mean, even if you get a grant or some funding, it's not the whole picture. It doesn't cover everything. And with that in particular, um, and this might, this is the case for VR films as well, like, you have to think about the exhibition of the film. So, okay, what Jason said was they put all this this money and this time into shooting this film in stereoscopic 3D. And then, I mean, even at my festival, like, we couldn't screen that. So you end up screening the other version of the film. And then it's like, why did we shoot this with this technology? And it is more expensive while it's more new and popular. So I think that the benefits of just waiting things out and not getting so caught up and I need to be on this train first can really benefit you because you can maybe be like calm down and be like, oh, I don't actually want to do a VR film. Like I was just feeling like I had FOMO and I wanted to do it and now I'm okay. So yeah, cautionary tale. Yeah. And I want to add that usually films that advertise themselves as like using the latest technology are the ones that look so dated later on. <laughs> It's true. So true. It's true. Yeah. I think a great quote I heard was like, assume that what you're using is already obsolete 
and then use it. Like don't use it because everyone else is using it. Don't use it because it's the latest new thing. You know, think of why you're using, like why do you need to rent an Ari or write? Why do you need to use this particular camera for this? Timeless is best. Mm -hmm. So we have a few festivals coming up this week. Our first screening is the Mobile Dance Film Festival which is the only dance film festival screening works shot solely from mobile devices. That is your iPhone, your Android, whatever you got, maybe an iPad. Their festival is going to be screening online this year from July 25th to August 31st. So it's still going. You have the chance now to watch it. Now's your time. It's $5 online and you get to watch a whole bunch of films from the comfort of your home. We also have some submission deadlines coming up. We have Fuselage Dance Film Festival in Seattle. They have a final deadline this August 23rd. Idaho Screen Dance Festival in Boise, Idaho. Final deadline, August 23rd. Lastly, we have the Cinedanza Festival in Modena, Italy. Their final deadline is August 24th. So make sure you get all your films together and submit to these festivals. All of the festivals that we have mentioned today will be linked in the show notes. All right. Well, that's our topic for today. And uh, last but not least, we got our pick of the week. This is our uh, our weekly pick that uh, we're prescribing to you to watch. We do this every week and it's unrelated to dance sometimes. And Totally uh, random. It's just <laughs> totally random. It's something that we're into. And uh, Claire, you picked this week. Yes, I picked a channel that I am absolutely, utterly obsessed with and that I have so, so, so many questions about. (laughs) So this channel is called, I kid you not, I Hate This Film. And this, and okay, this is a shout out. Who, I hate this film. Who are you? Why do you hate this film? Claire wants to meet you. I want to know. (laughs) I want to meet you. I do. Like this channel has a whole bunch of really old films like really old experimental films a lot of experimental dance films like a lot of really old like Anna Halperin recordings who yeah. again oh, Anna Halperin just turned yeah. 100 so happy birthday Anna but like seriously these are films that would be maybe like on two or three tapes in the whole world that are now on this Vimeo page and I just want to know like how how did this person get these films and why why do you hate this film yeah. Tell me, why do you I hate this film? I think they're great films. They're fantastic. I, really re- I, I recommend uh, the short, I was watching it right before we were recording called Transformer and it was just evolving and I didn't get to finish it, but I want to finish it. Um, yeah, I want to shout out another film um, called Descartes, which is a, a move- movement based, I'll say. But, um, but yeah, shout that one out too. Well, so when when you sent this link, it was the Vimeo channel link. And I always like to see what social platforms or other platforms people are on because I think it says a lot about their personality and their brand. And this person's only on Tumblr, which I thought was really awesome (laughs) because it's like, okay, I mean, guys, I still have a Tumblr that is pretty much a time capsule of my like late teens, early 20s, Pilgrim Soul. Um, But... (laughs) Before Instagram, but 
Yeah, I mean, it's just so quirky and weird. And I think that it's funny that it's called I Hate This Film. Like, why would you take the time to curate a channel of things that you hate and then not even write about why? Like, I thought that was really funny, too. It's just pretty absurd. And, like, I didn't expect there was going to be any dance stuff on it. And based on the thumbnails, I didn't really see any dance. But I saw the one um, procession with, like, a cool still of, like, scaffolding. So I clicked on it. And, mm-hmm. like, man, I I didn't watch the whole thing. I'll admit it. I was, like, trying to get through it. Right. And, you know, I'm at a point in my life where... You know, time is precious, okay? Like, mm-hmm. if it's not benefiting <laughs> me uh, greatly, I might just try something else. So that's when I shifted to the Tumblr page and, like, started trying to investigate, like, who might this person be? But, yeah, I love that you found this channel, and it is so random. <laughs> I was at some archives. I think I was at the Pacific Film Archives in Berkeley just researching. Like, I'm doing a big, like, dance film history of the San Francisco Bay Area project. and like a lot of these films are only available on film stock and usually you have to have like reserve a special screening to see some of them. And so initially like I want to see like, okay, maybe someone's already digitized this. So I don't have to, you know, set some time aside two months from now to book a book, a film reel. And I, you know, look them up online and they're on this. I hate this (laughs) film channel. So fantastic. That's a great story, Claire. You were meant to find it. So good. And it was meant to find yes. you. <laughs> yes. So I have a lot of love for I Hate This I Film. I love I Hate This Film. <laughs> well, that's our show, guys. Thank you, everyone who uh, came in and listened in. Be sure to, uh, you know, follow us on the gram. That's uh, at Frameform Pod. Frameform P-O-D. Feel free to email us at frameformpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, Jen, Claire, we'll see each other, you know, next week. Yes. I'm really looking forward to it. Same here. All right. Well, see ya. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Frameform is a production of Rixie. Hosted by me, Hannah Weber, Claire Schweitzer, and Jen Wright. Edited and mixed by myself and Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.